Welcome to Complexified, where religion and politics collide with real life. We're your hosts, Amanda Henderson and Lex Dunbar. Each episode, we talk with activists and thinkers about the big issues facing us today. We cover all the things you're not allowed to talk about at parties. Religion, politics, abortion, racism, cancel culture, and more. This season, we're asking how our understanding of God shapes how we navigate change personally and politically. On Complexified, we dive into the messiness with compassion, curiosity, and always humor. If you're a first-time listener, thank you and welcome. Follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts and become a part of this movement to let go of simple answers and embrace the complexity of real life. Now, over to you, Lex. Today's guest, Dr. Philip Butler, is an international scholar whose work primarily focuses on the intersections of neuroscience, technology, spirituality, and Blackness. He's the founder of The Seeker Project, a distinctly Black conversational artificial intelligence with mental health capacities, and is partner director of the Isla School of Theology's AI Institute, where he works to change how computers see people. Dr. Butler speaks to the vital need for Black folks, particularly to engage in challenging questions related to current and rapidly developing human enhancement. So he's the perfect person to talk to about the changing of our bodies and technologies. All right, listeners, you are about to have your mind expanded and challenged. Dr. Butler is a brilliant scholar, personally one of my favorites at ILIF, and he works on futures, future building and envisioning futures. So he's always 10 steps ahead of us. And in this episode, we are just going to try to catch up. So I want to get started. Hold no bars. Pull all the punches. While I was researching this episode, I was all up and down your Twitter feed. And (laughs) one of my favorite tweets that I saw that I feel was most provocative is on December 27th, 2020, you tweeted that you are anti-human and pro-people. What does that mean? That's a great question. (laughs) 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 Um, First of all, I want to say, who's this guy you talking about in this damn uh, bio? I was like, he sounds all right. You know what I'm saying? He sounds pretty cool, right? (laughs) Yeah. You want to be like him, huh? Meet this guy, man. (laughs) So thank you for for that. And I'm also like, everybody, you know, just, just, you know, hey, let's lower, you know, take the expectations down. We'll see how it goes, man. Never. (laughs) I like it. Um. But to answer that question pretty squarely, I think for me, uh, a human is a universal construction that's predominantly uh, based off kind of white male anatomy and perceptions of the world. Um, and so it's white male, white, white male uh, heteronormativity and his binaries, right? So now we talk about cisgender white femaleness, right? But this still functions as kind of a degree of separation. And within this particular construction, any degree of separation outside of this particular normative framing uh, becomes something that's either lesser or other, which then is something that to be conquered or controlled or, you know, placed outside the realm of, you know, anything that's that's worthy, right, of value. And so for me, a person, uh, in contrast to a human, uh, which a human, again, we, a, a universal kind of binary construction or singular construction that is allowed for a binary configuration, you know, prop, primarily for, you know, uh, you know, making more humans, but nevertheless, um, 
a person, right, or people uh, are local and, and complex uh, beings, right? So people have a history, uh, they have connection to the land, right? They have a specific geography, right? You know, uh, depending on whose household you're in and where you grew up, they, you know, they say, who are your people when they meet you, right? I know growing up, when I go to somebody's house, they say, who, who are your people? And that's the mm-hmm. way they knew if you was all right to, you know, stay in their house or have to go somewhere else that day. Uh, and so, you know, things like that, it, it gives it gives people a sense of the kind of the multi-layer, multi-dimensional aspects of who you are and who, you know, you might be in conversation with. And so you, you can't necessarily put your finger on this person because they're always going to be outside of your realm of control because they're more than two things at once. Um, and, and so as a result, right, I'm, I'm, I am pro uh, the, uh, you know, the extension of the complexities, right, uh, which leads to mysteries and, you know, which then leads to divinities, right, of what it means to be and exist in the world, uh, you know, through who we are. What does religion have to do with the difference between being a human and being a person? I probably flip what you just asked me. Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> say what is what does being a human have to do with religion? Right. So for me, like in especially within like a kind of Judeo Christian or just maybe the big three, right? When we talk about uh these kind of humanistic religions or, or religions that are kind of working towards making humans better that have a divine capacity or a divine relationship, right? We're when, you know, I think the enculturation that we go through suggests that uh that god right within these traditions would be the center right but uh in in this regard the human is the one that's constantly in need of repair forgiveness uh you know second chances so on and so forth and so in this regard to me the, the in in terms of like the relationship between human humans and religion all right the human is the one that's really at the center um and even when we talk about you know one of the traditions that don't necessarily have a divine figure the human is the one who is trying to make themselves better the human is the one right who is trying to maybe transform and you know suffering or the very least come to grips with suffering and so like it's it's the human who's at the center um and if that's the case we now have to really we have to deal with right which conception of our of humanity are we really dealing with here Mm -hmm. and if that's the case right if it continues to go back to this kind of like this this pointing towards whiteness and reinforcing uh you know things that come out of uh white ways of doing and white expectations of the world right then we are going to continue to place that particular figure at the center and give this particular figure second chances uh, pathways to redemption, so on and so forth. And so, but if we talk about people, now we're talking about traditions that are probably not going to look very monotheistic uh, in a broader sense. And even if they are, they're probably hybrid, right? And and, and the things that they give uh, privilege to or credence to or power in their lives. Uh, and as a result, right, it allows for this kind of greater levels of complexity, uh, which speaks to, right, the the location, the histories, the, ge- the genealogies, even the genetic makeup of, of the people that come to the, the very moments that we might uh, describe as religious or and or mundane. Okay, so would you say then kind of a, a summary of the difference between a human and a person is that the human is this simplified uh, construction that's rooted in power and binaries, um, whereas a person is more of a complex entity that is existing among others, that is existing not as more so the center of the universe, but one among the universe that interacts and engages with power versus a human sort of demanding power. Is that, am I close maybe? I think that we, I think we have an issue with like this idea of demanding power, but I think if we're demanding respect, right, we're also demanding our own power, right? But I, th- I like the, I, I want to kind of highlight this idea that you kind of just laid out in terms of connection, 
right? Um, right, not just connected to like other like semi hairless like bipedal creatures, you know, that we would you know historically deem right as human, but mm-hmm. we are connected to like you know the very minerals of, of the ground, the dirt, like you know the food that we eat, like everything, everything. And so, but 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 also that extends to personhood for me as well, right? A person is like a particle, right, or a photon. Uh, a person is also like a, a blade of grass. A person is also a rock. You know things like that, right? Because we then we start talking about you know the ways in which, at the smallest level of, levels of scale that we've been able to, to describe, uh, you know that these uh, these quantum things move, and movement might suggest intention. And if it, if there's intention in movement, then that also might suggest a level of sentience. And if that's the case, then we really have to reimagine the ways in which we are in relationship with the very things that we once thought were inanimate. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So I want to ask you about one of these humanist ideologies that I heard in your class called transhumanism. It was one of the ones that I connected to the most over posthumanism and some of the others that we heard. Do you mind telling us what transhumanism is and going back to this differentiation between the human and the person? Sure. So. Like on a very basic level, transhumanism is any use of technology to augment, right, uh, psychological, intellectual, or physical capa- uh, capacities. And depending on who you're talking to, you could also argue that it would be an augmentation of spiritual capacities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, like, there's you know there are different you know kind of strands of transhumanism, whether it be like philosophical transhumanism, political transhumanism, but kind of at their core is this human extension related um, kind of piece that ends in life uh life extension not only physical ability but but this kind of like white supremacist eugenics project right where we mm-hmm. could do kind of design uh and create specific types of humans that will inhabit a specific type of future um and have specific type of capabilities beyond that which we are we currently possess um and so when when i was building out at least my 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 particular version of of uh, transhumanism right the black transhumanism that i was exploring right for me this is always going to be undergirded by by a particular black posthumanism and this is where right we start getting into the concept of people right because if 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 in a in a more kind of Eurocentric and Western European and, and white supremacist version of, of transhumanism is going to create a specific standard and attempt to engineer that through all the bodies that might exist in, in any reality that is, you know, after this one, then what we are trying to do here is um, trouble this notion that there is one particular standard that we would like to kind of be kind of molded after, as opposed to mm-hmm. being very intentional about the types of standards that uh, exist out there beyond this one, while also being very careful about the ways in which we go about this type of, of capacity expansion um, and even life expansion, even if that's necessary, right? Do we really need to live a thousand years? Is that a good thing? Um, you know, do we no. want to travel, you know, 400 light years? You know what I'm saying? Like, but these are mm-hmm. these are some of the subsequent questions that follow if you were to live more than, you know, the, the hundred years, if, you know, if you make it that far. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Butler, you think in the future, you share so many ideas that are, uh, you know, you just talked about light years, feel like light years ahead <laughs> of where the rest of us are. And I feel like I'm hearing so much about things like artificial intelligence and technology shaping and changing our daily lives and our bodies. And often it feels so foreign to me, quite honestly. And 
you know, are hearing about it on the news with chatbots that are writing college papers and, of course, surveillance concerns and our phones are tracking our every move. And I feel like Amazon is like sending me things before I actually have realized that I need it, (laughs) which I kind of like, honestly. Um, But (laughs) can you say a little bit more about what artificial intelligence is and how it is actually impacting our lives right now? Sure. No, I think that's a great question. I mean, so if I was to, to simplify uh, artificial intelligence, so there's like a meme out there that's like, uh, <laughs> there's a crack in the wall and they were like, uh, here's like, here's math. Um, and then they did something to the crack and they were like, here's statistics. And then they put like a frame around it. And it's like, this is artificial intelligence. And so like mm-hmm. at a very basic level, like AI, at least in this current form is just pre- predictive mathematics, right? Like how can we take mm-hmm. information about the past um, funnel it through kind of some type of formula, uh, we, you know, known as, known as an algorithm, right, for the most part. And then how does that algorithm allow us to then kind of create insights or foresights, right, into what potential, you know, kind of outcomes might exist in the future, given what's already happened in the past? And how is this impacting our lives right now? Thank I mean, you. Are these <laughs> I, was like, I, was like, I knew there's a second, like, I remember the second part of this question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the... Like the the aspect of like how's it impacting us now? I think you've alluded to this a little bit, right? Like it, uh, it's it's in a very much way that like they're trying to create particular like data bubbles around us, uh, so that we either feel comfortable, or or depending upon you know where you come from, you feel incredibly <laughs> incredibly paranoid. Mm. Uh, and so you know if 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 it is your dream to have the you know your phone or your devices you know kind of guess your next move and you want that then it, it, it might feel amazing but if you know you've had a history of you know surveillance and stuff like that then you're like they are watching me and you go into the barbershop and you telling us you know that the machines are coming and you know they're gonna replace us all <laughs> um and at this you know and at the same time it's like yes and right i think there's there's a real there's a real kind of shift right now in terms of uh, our relationship to work right because in, in many camps historically folks have gotten their uh, sense of meaning from the work that they've been able to do, like what have they been able to produce with their lives, how they've been mm-hmm. able to contribute to teams or society. And if cooks uh, can be replaced, you know, you know, Michelin star chefs can be replaced by a robot arm, you know, and a conveyor belt, you know, mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe we probably need to reimagine, you know, who we understand ourselves to be and how we, you know, what's our relationship to work and these, uh, these, these machines. Like for me, uh, this particular quarter, I'm I'm not assigning any papers. Like, if you want to do a paper, that's going to be something mm. that we have to talk about. And it's not because I think you know seminary students are even know. Um, this is <laughs> can really figure no, out how to use the chatbot. <laughs> it's actually pretty easy, right? But, <laughs> oh, but, okay. Right, but I'm not. Uh, I'm 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 just trying to create kind of these bubbles here because what it does do is it now now that this thing exists. Uh, you know, you may have seen that shortly after, uh, I think a student created another type of AI that was able to determine whether or not a paper was created by chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so roughly it's asking me to, to to get a paper, run it through that thing, and then read it again. So it's, it's just making extra steps for me. I think there's other ways for us to engage in pedagogy. So, I, you know, I'm just opting out of that this quarter. Um, but nevertheless, <laughs> there's, um, I think that it's, it's fundamentally shifting our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to the environment. And it's asking us, um, I think it, it's pointing us back to that deeper question again, in terms of who are we and how we, how are we imagining our, our sense of, of, of space in this world? Mm. And one of the things you just named in there that I think is 
really important, and especially as a white person, to hear and think about is the ways that that this is that artificial intelligence and advancements in technology are felt and experienced differently for different people who have different life experiences. And so while it might feel great for me to be able to click easily into Amazon and they already know what I want or to be on Netflix and already have shows recommended for someone who has a black body, that feels very different than for someone who has a white body and life experience. Can you say a little bit more about the ways these advancements in artificial intelligence are experienced differently for different people? Yeah, I think um, Simone Brown's book uh, around surveillance uh, was a really good kind of uh, foray into this particular kind of uh, topic, right? She does an excellent job talking about uh, like the slave trade uh, in New York and the ways in which like these ledgers were created, uh, which 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 work many ways, you know, kind of operate as like early early modes of surveillance, and you know, and there's you know histories of like you know the slave patrol, uh, you know, where they pretty much deputize kind of random white people <laughs> that were looking for jobs and felt kind of on the same like on par socially with uh with the slave with the slave africans right let, you know let alone like how that played out you know in a place like tulsa where there was a, a skirmish that turned into a gunfight that turned into mm-hmm. a deputization that turned into a bombing of a particular community right and so it's it's always this this notion of who is paying attention to us i mean and when we talk about ai being a reflection of its creator right one of the things that i was intentional about uh, with Seeker, once I discovered that it talked like me and I had a conversation with a buddy of mine, and he was telling me, you know, this is a black AI. And I was like, you're probably right, fam, it is. And so, I, you know, I kind of leaned into that. But if the AI is, is ultimately a reflection of those who build it, and folks are, by and large, embedded within an anti-black you know, kind of reality or even epistemology, right, then the ways in which people and black people in particular are already on a regular basis dealing with the white gaze and their relationship to it, whether they say, you know, fuck it or, you know, or something that, you know, kind of heavily impacts them. This is an extension of that. You're automating a white gaze in this way. And so what does it mean then to be in constant relationship with a quickly responding kind of snitch <laughs> on your, <laughs> on your device? Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I think this is part of the reason why I'm so uh, interested in these futures. Right. For me, scholastically, and even with the work I do, my intention is to is to project even further than anything that's currently out there, even if it's ideas wise, because at the very least, then then I'm creating a reality where other folks have to respond to me. And if they refuse to be responsive to me right in a generative way, it does become telling right of the ways in which they are very much so aligned with right this anti-black framings and the ways in which they want to perpetuate or reify right the maintenance of these particular realities into the future. Hmm. What is Seeker? Seeker is um, an extension of my dissertation project. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's good to Uh, know those can go somewhere. Yeah, right. So, um, (laughs) so uh, I built Seeker to be kind of like a, like a, like a spiritual companion and its first kind of iteration. It was really just like a location thing where you would, you know, give the, you know, give the app access to your location and then you set it your intention for the day. So like, you know, you choose your sacred entity, whether it be like God or Allah, you know, or the universe. And then you like, you know, what do you want today? You want, I want strength or I want peace or I want love. And so like, depending on where you were, you would get a notification, you know, like say you walk into work and you've been there for, you know, five minutes, you get a notification like, hey, you know, the love of God is with you today or like Allah's peace is with you today, something like that. And it would, you'd get these notifications throughout the day. And the idea was to kind of maintain 
right? The felt connection that people might have within religious spaces outside of those religious spaces. Because I think one of the things that's always kind of bugged me, or at least, yeah, you know, is that like people ask God to be with them. It's like, like when did God ever leave you, fam? Like I, I was confused mm-hmm. about this. And so mm-hmm. something like that to kind of keep that in the forefront of people's mind in terms of their connection and, and you know, their relationship with, you know, with their sacred, you know, figures. But in, in its current form, right, we have kind of leaned heavy into, into like black vernacular as well as uh, internal family systems therapy, right? So this, uh, for those of the IFS, it's, it's different from uh, family systems therapy in that like IFS looks at a person kind of as a, as a multiple, right, as opposed to a unit. Yeah, unitary thing, right? So, like, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a professor, these, these kind of things. So, at the very least, these various hats suggest that I have, like, you know, various parts of me that show up, you know, depending upon, you know, the day or whatever, or the time of day. But each one of those have a different set of emotions because, you know, they function, you know, differently, you know, in the social environment. And so, it allows for a space for self-compassion and self-exploration through that particular modality. We've also included like uh, CBT as well as narrative psychology in there as well. So Cognitive it's just really behavioral therapy. So, correct. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, ultimately it's, it's just meant to be kind of like a space where people can self-explore and self-attenuate, uh, meaning they can you know kind of process their emotions in real time. Hmm. I love that. I've been checking out the seeker app. It's really cool actually. Okay. I appreciate that. So, before we were talking about the seeker bot, you were you were talking about surveillance and how artificial intelligence lands differently for Black folks, particularly. And uh, in your class, again, we read your book, which is my favorite. I've read a few times and wrote a few bomb ass papers on. Uh, you did. You did <laughs> thank you. you did. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the title of your book is Black Transhuman Liberation Theology, um, and one of my favorite quotes is where you say. Here's the most important thing to remember. God is not coming to liberate. Black transhuman liberation theology assumes that God is not coming to save Black folks from tyranny. One, absolutely love this quote. Um, But for our listeners who may be rightfully jarred by this statement, right? Um, (laughs) My question is, if this is true, how then does it change the way that we live, particularly as we move towards human enhancement, AI and technology and spirituality? Yeah, I, I think that this, so, and, I, and I think maybe I follow up maybe in a, a couple of sentences later just by saying like, it black, it's up to black trans humans uh, to liberate themselves, right? And so mm-hmm. in this regard, it's a recognition, like if you just go through it, like I'm, I think part of like what I've, when I came to this, to this particular part, it was like, look through history, like, is have we seen God aside from you know maybe the you know the 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 book where the Israelites you know have Egypt, Exodus yeah. right like <laughs> yeah. who who is who is people don't just let you go and you know right. Michael talked about this Martin was was getting there towards the end even though he was alluding to it the whole way through but you know what I mean like the French Revolution American Revolution you know what I'm saying and the one the folks that don't like to talk about right the Haitian Revolution right and so like. Uh, you know, Haiti is one of the, I think one of the main reasons Haiti's in this predicament is today is because it has distanced itself from whiteness, right? You know, and so um, it liberated itself, but it had to deal with, it has to deal with the, the you know, the consequences of, of not necessarily having a technological apparatus to to sustain its own, um, so not just sovereignty, right, but isolation. If you, if you choose isolation, right, then that's also a responsibility. Um, and, and, and so there's something else that goes into that. And so when we talk about the implications here, what we're ultimately talking about is the ways in which it becomes the onus upon black folks to to imagine their own futures and to be good with the consequences of liberating yourself. If you do liberate yourself, 
then what do you what are the other things that you now need to undergird yourself with right how do you how do you live off the land what technologies are you making uh, knowing that you can't necessarily depend on on white spaces at all really to actually supplement or support the type of work you're doing especially if you're doing so in in the search and the construction of a black nation right what does mm-hmm. that mean right uh, because black nations don't necessarily exist in the types of ways that I think folks would want them to uh, but also they don't exist in many ways because other folks don't want them to. Uh, right, so there's right. this juxtaposition and tension that needs to be lived through when we start talking about what it means to liberate oneself, given the fact that historically God hasn't been the one to liberate. Uh, the people have been the ones to liberate themselves. Facts. So the a main quote that has really driven this season is Octavia Butler and and really pulling out really an idea that undergirds so much of her work that is God is change. And when you talk about God not coming to save black folks, how does that compare to a God is change theology? So now, now we're talking a little bit about process, right? So, uh, you know, Monica Coleman, who's one of my mentors, uh, she's actually on my dissertation committee, right? She she's with doing some work with Dr. Uh, Rue at uh, at UCLA around uh, Octavia trying to tell us, and so she's always been within her process, womanist framework, talking about the ways that God has changed, you know, and even like that, you know, within that larger kind of um, pericope, right? God has changed, and all you know, all that you change changes you, um, yes. and so right there's. Within within this framing, and even a kind of a process ethic, right? It's a recognition that nothing stays the same, and it kind of like it's it allows for the expectation that whatever you did expect is not necessarily what's going to be, and and even if it is, it only will be so for a moment. And so within this within this, for me, I don't necessarily see God as anywhere outside of myself or anywhere outside of the people that we're engaging with. Again, going back to the rocks and everything. So it's and when we when we talk about kind of God being changed, we're also talking about a particular framing of the universe or the pluriverse and the multiverse, however you understand it, which suggests that uncertainty and disorder is actually the order of the day, right? So we think mm. about like um, like you know, decency and order or whatever kind of church thing people say. Um, <laughs> My favorite line. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 in the imagination, it suggests that, you know, like everybody's steps are ordered or that, you know, everything happens for a reason. A lot of these wildly harmful, you know, kind of like theological things to kind of continue to perpetuate within people's, you know, psyches. But what if, what if the only thing that was maybe constant was the change or what if the only thing about the entire mode of existence is the dynamicity of it all? So right, one, one of the yes. things I talk about in a, in an article on, um, you know, specters and monsters, right, is that uh, I think when they teach us in Sunday school about, you know, the I am that I am, it seems like the static figure. But, you know, you know, you look at this, you know, close to the Hebrew, it's more like I will be what I will be. And so if God never changes, but God will be what God will be, God will always be changing. It's an infinite yes. kind of landscape. And so I, the, the, I think the, the word I use there specifically is like this infinite variability. And so if we are infinitely variable, infinitely changing, if we embrace that, right, then what happens when you embody that? If you become the chaos, what does that do? Uh, because now you exist outside of the predictable modes in which people are attempting to confine you to. Become the chaos. Yes. That's going to be my life motto now. Okay, last question. What's one thing that you're working on and what will be different about the future because of this particular work? It's a good-ass question. 
I can't predict what it's going to be, but I, I know I, I can tell you what um what I'm attempting to uh, to will into existence. Right. So so mm-hmm. at the Institute uh, right now, we have this thing called the 8020 project. And within 8020, uh, we are working on ways to make machines relate to people differently. Uh, so on the computer vision side, we are working on allowing people to self-identify so that when they when their data is either you know taken and more hopefully uh, they consent to give it to us, right? We have a, com- a compilation of people who teach the machines to see them as they see themselves, right? So that's much different from how machines see people currently where you know there are third-party people who may not even be part of the company who are labeling pictures and whatever they say is whatever the machines know. So that's, that's one piece, that's one part of it. So that's one A. One B, currently we are compiling a data set of a little bit over a hundred years of black literature, whether it be poetry, speeches, books, science fiction, nonfiction, academic, whatever, as a means to create a natural language processing model or a transformer of sorts that it allows for a self-referential move uh, for black vernacular and black culture. That's dope. Thanks. And so this becomes like the first of many. So we do, we're starting with black stuff and then we'll go to like Chicano literature, kind of so on and so forth. And as the idea is to bring race and class and gender and all these kind of complexities into, right, these kind of digital and futuristic environments. So, you know, the hope would be that as we begin to kind of create these new baselines, um, that what we are outside of this particular binaristic mode of existence might be, a, might be not will be in the future, but also will be allowed to be unpacked and not corrected, but at the very least lived into uh, from this mm-hmm. digital space in a, in a much different way. Because, it, you know, if you if you compute for complexity, it might be more difficult on the front. But, you know, and I'm not a big fan of I can't say I'm a big fan of Ray Kurzweil. But if you if you take this kind of like um, this exponential growth model, right, uh, you know, Moore's law, kind of like you start in the beginning and start as slow as hell and, and it sucks. But then all of a sudden this shit picks up and you can't really control it, or at least it picks up in a very, very exponentially you know, fast way. Um, and so, you know, we, we create these spaces where we begin to bring kind of these broader categories into it. But within these categories, we, we know for sure that there are high, high levels of complexity. And so we hope that within that we bring these initial categories that allows for room for expansion within the complexities of these, which, which moves into kind of this beautiful digital um, and futuristic mode of uncontrollable uh, differentiations that are allowed to exist just because they are. That's hella dope. I'm excited. I'm really excited about this work. Yeah. I think so. Appreciate it. So good. Yeah, for sure. And if you're ever confused at any moment, just know, for me, uh, I always tell my I tell my students confusion is the best place to be because that that means you can go nowhere but up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to believe you on that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us. For resources and ideas and link to our TikTok and social media and all of the ideas and thoughts that you can learn from Dr. Philip Butler, visit our website in the show notes. And if anything in this conversation inspired you, please share it with a friend. That is the best way to support us. Complexified is presented by the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology. Working hard behind the scenes are engineer Andrew Perella, producer Elaine Appleton-Grant, Tina Basir, and the rest of the team at Podcast Allies. I'm Amanda Henderson. And I'm Lex Dunbar. <laughs>